consider for a moment what it would be like to want to help a people. When most of the people you wanted to help either disliked or distrusted you. Also consider the additional frustration of regularly contending with critics who were outside of the group that you most wanted to help. But suppose that every once in a while you won the most unlikely of converts. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From WHRV in Norfolk, Virginia, this is Watching America. Larry Elder is beloved by some and detested by others. As an agent of reassessment, both within the African-American community and outside of it, he has, over the last quarter century, secured a prominent position as a columnist and broadcaster. As a black man, he long ago broke ranks with the Reverends Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton by rejecting what he calls group identity politics in favor of an emphasis on self-sufficiency and responsible individualism. In short, it grieves him to see minorities view themselves as victims. He argues that the real issue facing minorities today is not systemic white privilege or the lack of opportunity, but rather broken families left derelict due to absent fathers. And so Larry Elder often finds himself at odds with those in media who also claim concern, although from a different vantage, such as Piers Morgan. Larry Elder, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been pretty scathing. Why? Racism is not a major problem in America anymore. The number one problem facing black people are the large number of black people born outside of wedlock, 75 percent. In 1965 percent of all people in this country were born outside of wedlock. Fast forward, Piers, the number now is 43 percent. You look at that for crime, dropouts, all that kind of stuff is connected. Hard work wins. Get an education. Uh, don't pay attention to negative people and stay focused and you'll be okay in America. That's why most of the people in the world want to come here. That's why you want to come here, Pierce. Thank you, Larry Elder. Welcome to Watching America. My guest is Larry Elder. It is a great uh, privilege for me to have this gentleman of high thought on the program. Certainly controversial. When I've told a few persons that he was going to be here, I got all sorts of reactions, which means, of course, I have a great guest. Larry grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and he was also uh, very much aware of different cultures, having grown up in a largely uh, Hispanic community in South Central Los Angeles, Crenshaw to be particular. He eventually went on to go to school in Michigan, University of Michigan and Brown University, where he got his uh, law degree. And then he settled uh, in the Midwest and decided in Cleveland to write articles. He had a, a very successful business, which was related to headhunting of a sort, and he decided he had to express himself. So he wrote articles for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and then for the Akron Beacon Journal. And thereafter, he had a guest spot on a radio program, and he was approached by a man called George Green, a very important radio executive who said, listen, you have talent, you should be heard, and should be heard by a broad audience. Thereafter, he moved to Los Angeles and started a program that has been a successful ongoing enterprise for 25 years. He is a successful author of multiple books, including 10 Things You Can't Say in America, Showdown, which is confronting bias, lies, and special interests that divide America, What Has Race Got to Do With It?, and then a personal expose and, well, ongoing conversation about his relationship with his father, known as Dear Father, Dear Son, Two Lives. It is my great privilege to welcome him. Welcome, Larry, to the program. Alan, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful introduction. Now i got to live up to that. <laughs> How are you? Oh, great. Listen, I first of all feel um, it's incumbent upon me to apologize for my fellow countryman who was incredibly needlessly aggressive 
to you. And I'm, of course, I'm talking about <laughs> Piers Morgan. As a Britisher who is delighted to live in America, your closing line, and that's why you came here, Piers. <laughs> Thank <laughs> well, you, Larry Elders. Know, haven't you noticed, though, Alan, that he's changed? I mean, he seems he to be has. a lot more reasonable. I mean, he's been making all sorts of commonsensical observations about Trump. I mean, I, I think yes. I think something happened to him. I think he, uh, I think he learned a lesson uh, going after American values, particularly the Second Amendment, the way he has, and I think it's made it more reflective. I think you're absolutely right. I just came back from London last week, and of course he does the Good Morning Britain show there. Right. And uh, the the tenure, the tone is in, entirely different. So there evidently has been some uh, evolution that's taken place in at least his his paradigm of thought. But you are a master at bringing about changes in other person's viewpoints. And I, I without question, the most documented uh, example of that was when you were with Dave Rubin. Here is a, a gay Jewish gentleman who's married to uh, David Janet, uh, certain, certainly no one who would be otherwise considered to be uh, conservative or in any stretch of the imagination. And yet you sit down with him, and he makes charges uh, about uh, white privilege, and etc. And you challenge him on that, to which mm-hmm. he is dumbfounded and doesn't know how to respond. Uh, you're not mean. You're not unkind. You're not uh, needlessly aggressive. You just want something to substantiate his viewpoint, and he can't deliver. And therein, you change his whole framework, uh, if not spiritual, a political epiphany, which you brought about in that moment. Since that, which was about two years ago, how has that manifested in other areas of your life? Well, I had never heard of Dave Rubin until I was contacted by him in order to have the interview, uh, and I agreed to do it. And I think, Alan, the reason that he was so receptive to hearing what I had to say is because we had about a 10-minute conversation before we started, as they were setting up, and we were chatting, and I said, to him, you know, you're, you're going to tell me a whole bunch of stuff, uh, and, I, and, and trust me, I've heard it all before. I'm going to tell you a lot of stuff that you have never heard before because uh, the people in your world are all like you. They all say the same things. In my world, I have to deal with people like you because I live in California. Uh, I can't, I, I can't, I can't uh, avoid hearing left-wing thought, but you can easily avoid hearing uh, a different point of view. You're going to hear stuff you've never heard. And he seemed... Um, uh, intrigued by that. He wasn't bothered by it, but he seemed intrigued by it. And so I think he was prepared to perhaps hear something he hadn't heard, uh, but I don't think he was prepared to react to it. And I, and I probably have gotten more reaction from that interview with, with Dave Rubin than almost anything I've ever done. Um, and uh, it's also got letters from people telling me, Alan, that they thought exactly the way Dave Rubin did, that these slogans, uh, institutional racism, structural racism, systemic racism, obviously had to be true. Otherwise, people did, wouldn't say them. But they had never been challenged on to give me specifics. Where is your data? Where is your hard evidence that these kinds of things are happening? And to the extent that we do have evidence, it all shows the opposite. This is the most tolerant country uh, on the face of the earth. This is the most fair country on the face of the earth. It's a country where you can go from nothing to something within one generation to the extent uh, that uh, that no other country could ever match. And still we're, 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 we're complaining about problems that we've long since solved. Uh, and I think there's an agenda, and the agenda on the part of the left is to get people angry, uh, have women believe that they're being oppressed because of sexism, have gays believe they're being oppressed because of homophobia, blacks because of racism, Hispanics because of racism, and so forth. It's an anger party. It's an identity par- party as opposed to a party of principles. And and uh, if you just follow the principles, work hard, get a good education, don't make bad moral mistakes, you'll do just fine in America, irrespective of your race, irrespective of your sex, irrespective of your gender. Before we get into your um, political perspective and your career, prestigious career perspective, I want to start with your, your place of origin. You grew up in Southern California, uh, largely right. in the Crenshaw area. You actually right. lived in a quite a Hispanic community, as I understand, in South Central LA. And for some time, and you've written about this in, in your book uh, regarding your, your dad, in which you have said in Dear Father, Dear Son, and the paperback version of which is called A Lot Like Me, that for some 10-year period, a decade, you did not communicate or speak with your father effectively. You lived in the same house for periods of time, but you would avoid each other. Uh, Meanwhile, you are eking out a fine education. You go to the University of Michigan, you go to Brown University, you become an attorney, you become a lawyer, you have a very successful headhunting business, Uh, you settle in the Midwest, and then you felt this strong compulsion to get on a plane and to go and see your father. Right. 
Your father's an owner of a, of a cafe. You leave LAX as soon as you arrive. You make a beeline for the cafe as he's closing up, cashing out, and you sit at two stools. Tell us what happened. Well, my father and I, as you mentioned, did not speak to each other from the time I was 15 years old. Now I'm 25 years old. And as you mentioned, I have this job in, uh, in, in Cleveland. I'm making a great deal of money. I should be living large, and I'm having difficulty sleeping. But I know it has something to do with my father. Not that I ever thought we would be ever be buddies, but I figured if ever I sat down with him and told him what an SOB I thought he was, he'd probably call me an ungrateful son. At least maybe I'd be able to sleep. So here I am. My father sits down, and for 20 minutes, I told my father everything he'd ever done to me, everything he'd ever said to me, everything, every slight, everything he'd ever done to me that offended me, uh, which made me have this seething anger towards him. After I finished, Alan, I spoke for 20 minutes nonstop. And when I finished, my father looked up and said, is that it? You didn't speak to me for 10 years because of that? And I said, yes. And my father said, for the first time I ever saw my father cry, I didn't think the man could generate tears. And he said, let me tell you about my father. Now, I knew, Alan, that my father was an only child, but that's pretty much all I knew about him because I didn't like him, so I didn't really care. Mm. I met his mom one time when we visited her uh, in, in Georgia, but um, uh, aside from that, I, I knew nothing at all about my father. I knew he had no relatives because we never got any gifts during Christmas. Mm. So uh, my dad said, your last name, Larry? Elder? I said, yeah. He said, that is not my father's name. I said, what is your father's name? He said, I have no idea. I said, you've never met your father? He said, I've never met my biological father. I said, who was Elder? Elder was some guy who was in his life for about four or five years. He was an alcoholic who was physically abusive to him and to his mother. His mother was uh, illiterate uh, and a woman that had a series of boyfriends, each one more irresponsible than the one before. My dad said he came home from school when he was 13 years old, eighth grade, quarreled with his mom's then-boyfriend. Elder was long gone. His mother sided with the boyfriend, threw my father out of the house at the age of 13. Black boy, Jim Crow South, Athens, Georgia, at the beginning of the Great Depression. I defy you to find very many people who had a hand dealt like that. Mm. And for the next eight hours, Alan, my father and I talked about his life, and then my life, and his life, and my life. And over that period of time, the man grew from this SOB to this kind, caring, thoughtful person. The reason my father was so honorary to us is the man never slept. He worked two full-time jobs at the janitor. He cooked for a family on the weekend, went to night school to get his GED. So the man never slept. We're not talking about not sleeping for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, years. And so imagine coming home with an hour or two of sleep into a house with three rambunctious boys and then having to be the, the lawgiver. So I get it. And, and, and I'm, now I'm crying. And I said, Dad, I am so sorry. I so misunderstood you. And he said, Larry, don't be. But follow the advice I've always given you and your brothers. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you moan and whine about what somebody did to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it, and say, how could I have changed the outcome? And finally, no matter how good you are, how hardworking you are, how moral you are, Bad things will happen. How you respond to those bad things will tell your mom and me if we raised a man. So I wrote a book about it, and it's called Dear Father, Dear Son, Two Lives, Eight Hours, about the entire conversation. That's the hardcover. The, 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 the paperback is called A Lot Like Me. We changed the title because people right. felt it was a collection of, of letters, and, it, and it's not. It's, a, it's really a memoir about that eight-hour conversation. You are listening to Watching America. We'll be right back. WHRO's The 1920s Radio Network is a broadcast service dedicated to playing big band music and old-time radio programs 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a worldwide audience, as well as for listeners in Hampton Roads. Tune in online at whro.org, on a digital radio at 90.3-2, or on a standard FM radio at 99.3. And enjoy the sounds of the past on the 1920s Radio Network. 
If you're just joining us, we're talking to Larry Elder, and this program is called Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Now, there were two areas of, of employment for African-Americans, particularly in the 40s, even earlier, but 30s, 40s, and 50s, which had some degree of prestige to them. One was to be a Greyhound bus driver, uh, and there's been a few articles and books written about that. And the other one was to be a Pullman porter, and your dad was the latter. He was a Pullman porter for the trains for some period of time. And then he decided to go to Los Angeles. Why was that? Uh, my dad um, traveled out here as a Pullman porter, and you're right. There was a very, there was a very prestigious job for blacks. In fact, the Pullman Company was the largest private employer of blacks in those days. PBS out here did a special on the Pullman porters called Miles of Smiles. Uh, anyway, my dad came out on a run to California, and you see, in those days, of course, because of the segregation, uh, my dad never knew when he was in in the South if he'd be able to get off and get to go to a restaurant and get something to eat or or, or anything like that. So my dad always took cans of uh, food with him and crackers and those kinds of things. He didn't have to do that in California. In California, you could walk into a restaurant and get served. So my dad felt that it was less racist, people seemed friendlier, and of course, the weather was great. So my dad made a mental note that maybe sometime he'll relocate to California. Well, Pearl Harbor happened. My dad joined the Marines. And I asked him why. And he said two reasons. They go where the action is, and I love those uniforms. My father was stationed in Guam. He was a a cook. He was in charge of the cooking facility. He was a staff sergeant. The war is over. He goes back to Chattanooga, where he had met and married my mom, uh, and he walked around all day to get him a job as a a cook, and he was told, we don't hire inwards. He was actually a part of what was known as the Mumford Point Marines, correct? That's correct. They were the first black Marines. Uh, There were 20,000 of them uh, at at Mumford Point, North Carolina, from 1942 to 19. 1949. And a few years ago, they received a Congressional Gold Medal. Yes. Uh, and my father got his posthumously. Uh, one local congressperson arranged it uh, uh, at Camp Pendleton out here in California. Uh, but uh, they were they were the equivalent of the Tuskegee Airmen. For some reason, people know who the Tuskegee Airmen are, but don't know who the Montford Point Marines were. But they were equally uh, pioneering. And my dad was one of them, I'm proud to say. So he, he comes back and uh, can't get a job as a cook. Uh, he goes to, to an unemployment office. The lady says, you went through the wrong door. My dad goes out to the hall, Alan, and sees colored only, goes through that door to the very same lady who sent him out, just to train you on, on how to be inferior. He came home to my mother and said, this is nonsense. I'm going to California. I'm getting me a job as a cook, and then I'll send for you. He goes out to California. He walks around for a couple of days in, in L.A., and he's told by restaurant after restaurant, I'm sorry, you have no references. My dad said, I'll cook for free. Just give me a reference after a week or two. They wouldn't even do that. They treated him the same way in California as they did in Chattanooga. They were a little more polite about it. So he goes to an unemployment office. This time, uh, he just only one door. He takes the first job, and that's his job as a janitor, and then, then takes a second full-time job, as I mentioned, as a janitor, and then cooks for a family on the weekend, and then goes to night school to get his GED. So the man literally never slept. Ralph Waldo Emerson used to be a regular part of the diet of uh, literary education in the United States. I'm a great believer that people who grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s uh, certainly had a better education than most high schoolers do today. So the essay written by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a Unitarian and Transcendentalist and a citizen of Concord, Massachusetts, self-reliance was a major part of the psyche of, if you will, the, the American persona. Your dad without perhaps being exposed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, it seems to me was living that out, the whole idea of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, don't cry, don't blubber, move on. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that, Alan. As I was writing the book, my dad died almost the moment I finished it. And from time to time, I would talk to him about this, that, and the other. And I would ask him the same kind of questions that, that you kind of asked me. Well, Dad, why? Why weren't you angry? Why were you motivated? Why, why didn't you, why did you quit? Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you? And he would look at me like I had eight heads. <laughs> what kind of question is that? He said, I had no option. If you're going to eat, you have to work. I wasn't going to go to jail. And he said, we didn't have civil rights leaders like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton running around telling us that we were victims. Uh, We didn't feel that way. We just knew we had to work. And my dad really feels that the culture of the country changed, the culture of the inner city especially changed, with Lyndon Johnson's so-called war on poverty, uh, where essentially women were being compensated, provided they didn't have uh, a man in the house. My father always called that, quote, the worst thing that ever came down the pike, close quote. My father was a lifelong Republican. He always said, Democrats want to give you something for nothing. And when you try and get some, uh, something for nothing, you almost always end up getting, getting nothing for something. 
That was my my father's my father's uh, characterization of the of the Democratic Party. And by the way, my mom was a Democrat, lifelong Democrat, but a JFK type Democrat. You know, JFK was a coal warrior. He believed in in lowering taxes. He believed in a strong military. He was a hunter. Uh, he was very likely pro life, even though that wasn't an issue because his sister certainly was uh, active in the pro life uh, community. So my mother always pulled the lever, however, for Republicans, even though she wouldn't change her party affiliation. Less people uh, view you strictly as a conservative. You actually have been credited by many sources of being more of a libertarian. Is, is that inaccurate? No, that's not inaccurate. That's what I call myself. I call myself a, a small L libertarian. I've never joined the Libertarian Party. I'm not a capital L libertarian because I've never really respected their, their position on foreign policy. They seem to believe if you leave people alone, they'll leave you alone. Uh, that's nice uh, on, on paper, but in the real world, it doesn't quite work that way. So I've never been a capital L libertarian, but I've always believed that government is way too large. Uh, we never should have done Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, and Medicaid. I know that they're now baked in the cake, and any politician that says, what I've just now said is dead in the water. But none of those programs should have should have happened. Americans are way too taxed, way too regulated. Government is way too large. And if government got out of the way and got down to the side that the founding fathers intended, Americans would be happier and more prosperous. In the 1990s, we had a phrase uh, which was bandied about, and that was the idea of capitalism with compassion. Do you think that there is such a thing? I don't even know what that means. We have laws uh, that guard against fraud and against theft, uh, and that's that's compassionate enough. I don't I don't know what the rest of that means. Uh, my friend Tom Sowell, uh, the economist, says envy used to be one of the seven deadly sins, but it's now been repackaged as social justice. People are demanding equality. I don't even know what that means. If you want more, work for it. Improve your skills. Don't be envious of what somebody else has and pass laws to take it from them to redistribute it to something else. You once quoted your father as saying, Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you can control the effort. That's right. My All father right. always told me that. Uh, that. That is a, a rare voice and a rare position nowadays. And again, I allude back to you know Ralph Waldo Emerson, the whole concept of self-reliance. How have we lost this sense of self-reliance? And in particular, within minority groups, but it does seem to be even pervasive uh, with, with non-minority groups as well. Are we a weaker nation than we were 50 years ago? Uh, in, in some respects, we are because of the breakdown of the, of the nuclear intact family. Uh, in 1965, 25 percent of black kids were born outside of wedlock. Now it's about 70 percent. Uh, it's about 50 percent of Hispanic kids. About 25 percent of white kids are now born outside of wedlock. Uh, and uh, forget about Larry Elder. Barack Obama said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. It is far and away the number one problem facing this country. And I have been on air now for about 25 years, Alan. I've never been able to get Jesse Jackson on for an interview or Al Sharpton on for an interview or Minister Farrakhan on, a, on, the, on for an interview, three of the largest, arguably big-name so-called black leaders in the country. But I was able to get a, the then-president of the NAACP on my show. His name is Kwese Nfume. He's still around. Mm -hmm. And I said, Mr. Mfume, as between the presence of white racism or the absence of black fathers, which poses the bigger threat to the black community? And to his credit, without missing a beat, he said the absence of black fathers. That's the problem. Everything else stemmed from that. Crime, bad schools, uh, people that are not ready to, to compete in our, in our marketplace. All this stems from not having the right kind of values in the home. And when you have a mother and a father under one roof working hard together to raise you, your, your prospects are far, far better. A poor black kid raised with, with two parents will have a better outcome than a middle-class white kid with just one parent. There's a whole issue of intersectionality uh, where there's alignments, allies made between various groups and extremely dissimilar groups, I might add, Every, you know, as we've seen with marches in Washington and a great deal of complications with uh, people supporting Islam and yet the African-American community, the Hispanic community. Is this just muddying the waters or is there any good that can be found in the concept of intersectionality? Well, I've, I've heard the term. I, I've never quite understood what it means. It does seem to mean to mean a bunch of overlapping of, of people who feel that they have grievances. Uh, I don't get it. I, I don't get the whole reparations thing. Uh, uh, there are no black slaves right now, no, black, no white slave owners. My father wasn't a slave. Uh, white people's fathers weren't slaves and so forth. This is just nonsense. Again, this is a, a, I call it a nation of victocrats, people feel, feeling that America is unfair, uneven, uh, unlevel, and therefore the government needs to, needs to jump in and level the 
playing field. Uh, you know, once you've been treated as if you've been discriminated against, and then you're given fair treatment, fair treatment seems almost like discrimination. And we've we've just raised a, a nation of people who who feel that there's a free lunch, and these SODs over here are stopping us from eating it. Larry, you once said of radio uh, to your wife, it's shallow, glib and stupid. And yet you've been in this industry for 25 years. And I can assure you, you are certainly not shallow. You are not glib, nor are you stupid. Um, Of all the things that have astonished you in recent American culture in the last 10 years, what has been paramount and at the top? I'll, I'll tell you, the thing that surprised me most, that shocked me the most, is that Americans would accept the idea of being told to buy health insurance. Every man, woman, and child, whether you want to, whether you need it, or whether you can afford it. I'm talking about Obamacare. I really did not think even people on the, on the left would put up with it. Surprise, surprise, we are now marching towards single payer. Um, I just did not believe that uh, that mandate would be acceptable. I didn't think the American people would, would, would accept it. Indeed, when Obama ran, he opposed the mandate. Hillary supported it. And then he did a 180, demanded a mandate, and the American people said, I'm fine with it. I was shocked. But what do you do when you have uh, burdened emergency rooms where people are lining up, do not have a way of, of, of paying compensation for the service they're receiving, and are in, in dire threat of losing their homes? I mean, surely, just as, as, as a human, human to human to human to humanity at large, that, that that's a, a grave concern, is it not? Well, we're always going to have people who are needy, and the question is not uh, if we're going to help. The question is how we're going to help. And I argue that medical 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 care uh, is a commodity like anything else. Uh, it uh, it will react to supply and demand, uh, and the and the more uh, active and free market there is, the greater the accessibility, the lower the prices, the better the quality. And unfortunately, healthcare in this country uh, is now to the point where almost fifty percent of our healthcare dollar is paid for by the government, either at the federal level, at the state level, and there. Therefore, it is a very inefficient system and far more costly than it otherwise would be. If Larry Yoder were starting the system all over again, I'd go back to doctors being able to post their prices, hospitals being able to post their prices, and people paying for services out of their own pocket. And we have insurance companies that provide you a policy with a high deductible, uh, and, out of the, and out of the rest of it, you pay your own expenses, just as you do with the, with your car insurance. Uh, our, the, the, the medical care is not would not be difficult if government has not decided that the Economics 101 do not apply to it, when in fact it does. You indicated that Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, have avoided you, in fact declined uh, multiple requests on your part to be able to interview them on your program. But they aren't the only persons who have tried to avoid your attention. Certainly Michael Moore is another example. In 2005, you made a documentary called Michael and Me, right. uh, which is a play off the original um, documentary that Michael Moore made, Roger and Me, uh, in which he avoided you. Later on, in 2007, there was a, a, another documentary made called Manufacturing Dissent, uh, made by Rick Kane and, and Debbie Micklink. What is your position on Michael Moore now, and did he ever at any point make any overture to have contact with you? Uh, well, the reason I sort of was that he didn't come on my show, that he said publicly, I'll debate any Republican anywhere, anytime over the issue of guns. So we contacted him, and initially his office appeared to be receptive. And then I couldn't get him. I couldn't find him. So I put a little something on my website with a little clock. Uh, a year had gone by, and I finally decided to go and try, uh, try and track him down. And so I decided to do a documentary about my trying to track Michael Moore down to have an interview. And I finally did. I, I did an ambush interview of Michael Moore in Santa Monica. I was able to ask him three questions, and I asked him, how often do Americans use guns to defend themselves? He wouldn't answer. Uh, he said, we have too many guns in the country. I said, that wasn't the question. And I asked him again and then again, and he still didn't answer the question. And and that is one of the showstoppers for anybody that's on the, the anti-Second Amendment side, like Michael Moore. How often do Americans pick up a firearm and use it to defend themselves versus how often do they pick up a firearm and use it in an illegal way? And these guys do not want to deal with that. There's evidence that about a million point two five Americans every single year use a firearm to defend himself or herself, and of that number, about 40% believe but for the firearm they would have been dead. Why isn't that part of the conversation? I was trying to ask Michael Moore, and he refused to, to have a dialogue with me about that. It is true, though, is it not, that you're more likely to, to die by gunshot if you own a weapon than if you don't? I mean, is that not irrefutable? <laughs> No, 
well, it's not true, and, and that came from a, a, a doctor named Kellerman. It's often been used by the uh, anti-Second Amendment uh, people. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, that he failed to take into consideration is if you have a gun in your house, in many cases you have a gun in your house because you live in a dangerous neighborhood. Uh, it isn't the gun that caused the danger. It was the, it was the rounding bad guys that caused the danger. Once that was adjusted, that number uh, that, uh, that he supposedly came up with fell down uh, dramatically. Uh, there's a lot of research that says the opposite, uh, and probably the proponent, the biggest proponent of that research is John Lott, who wrote a book called More Guns, Less Crime, where he went over every single county in America to find out whether there was a correlation between the presence or absence of gun, guns and crime. And what he found out was if people are, are, are defending themselves with, with guns, uh, you're less likely to be robbed. And so more guns, less crime. Probably the community in California that has perhaps per capita more guns in any community uh, is a place called Simi Valley, where for, for whatever reason, a lot of police officers live. It's a very low crime rate. In fact, one of the lowest crime rates uh, in, this, uh, in, this, in this state, and it's because most homeowners have firearms, and bad guys know that. You are listening to Watching America. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. This is Jay Sennett. Tune in Monday through Thursday evenings from 9 until 1, Saturday mornings from 1 until 5, and Sunday afternoons from 1 until 5, as I host The Best in Jazz on Sennett in Session. We feature many of the great artists playing this music today, combined with several of the great classics. The Best in Jazz on Sennett in Session, right here on 89.5 WHRV-FM, Public Radio for Eastern Virginia. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with Henry Winkler, who won an Emmy for his portrayal of a self-important acting teacher in the HBO dark comedy series, Barry. Winkler is known around the world for his role as the Fonz in the series Happy Days. We'll talk about his life and career. Who would know more about me than me? Join us today at 3 on 89.5 WHRV. If you're just joining us, this program is Watching America, and we have the great honor of having Larry Elder. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. The next question I want to ask you is, is how you originally got started being a person who's certainly not shy to express your opinions. And when you lived in Cleveland, you began writing articles for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and also for the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh, in high school, in, in, in junior high, in university and college, were you always outspoken, or did this slowly emerge as a part of your persona? No, I think I was always outspoken. In fact, the reason I got into radio uh, is that when I got this offer, uh, I, I was on radio for an hour in Cleveland because I'd written an article where I argued that racism was no longer a major uh, factor in America. That was 30 years ago, and I guess it was a revolutionary thing to say then, uh, and they had me on for an hour, and after I did the hour, the station manager asked me if I would sit in for the host, and I declined. And he said, why? And I, that's when I gave that line. I, it, it strikes me as being a, a silly kind of thing to do. I don't want to do it. He said, are you married? At the time, I was. He said, talk it over with your wife and, and see whether or not you'll agree to sit in for the host for, for a week. Because I've been doing this for a long time, Larry. You have a good speaking voice. You take difficult positions. You defend them effectively without losing your sense of humor. I think you do well in this business. And I said, well, I've never even thought about doing talk radio. Don't think I'd like it, but I'll, I'll talk it over with my wife. And that's when she said, well, what do you think of talk radio? And I said, I don't know anything about it other than it seems shallow, glib, and stupid. She said, it is. You'd be good at it. <laughs> well, you were assailed with a, a series of epithets thrown at you. You were called an Uncle Tom, as you've indicated yourself, uh, a, a bootlicker uh, uh, in relation to other things, coconut and Oreo, even an antichrist. Does that still right. go on, or have you been able to uh, dis dispense with some of these allegations? Died down. I mean, once you hear me for the first time, uh, if you're of a certain mindset, that's often the reaction. But after time, if you stay with me and you hear how how calm and reasonable I think my arguments are, uh, then then that pretty much goes away. You know, we started out this interview with your saying that you told people you were going to talk to me, and they had kind of a negative reaction. Mm -hmm. Here's what I here's what I here's my response to that. What does Larry Elder stand for? 
Larry Oda stands for somebody who doesn't believe that sexism and racism are, are impediments that today in 2019 can hold anybody back. Why is that a bad message? At worst, I'm naive. But why does it make me a villain? Why does it make me somebody that people dislike? I find that almost almost amusing. Here I am saying, please don't pull you over routinely because you're just black. There are all sorts of reasons why there's a disproportionate number of black people behind bars. There all, there's all sorts of reasons why there's a disproportionate number of black people who don't graduate from school. It has okay. very little to do with racism. What, what are the reasons, Larry? Well, well, again, back to the home. Uh, look at the numbers of hours that uh, the average Japanese household or Chinese household uh, spends uh, on homework versus the average amount of hours a white household spends versus the average amount of hours of homework black or Hispanic spend, and it's night and day. And if you are somebody who believes that if you get a basketball and you go out in the backyard and, and practice your jump shot, you're going to be a better a jump shot shooter, but the same logic doesn't apply to math or, or, or reading or science or history, we got a real problem when you don't emphasize uh, education in the house uh, and kids are not... Uh, being told what time to go to bed, and, and the parents are not making sure that the homework is done, all bets are off. And don't blame the white man for that. As you look at the African-American standpoint right now of very, very visual, audible persons in media, are there any persons of highlight that you're particularly interested in? I, I'm People like Candace Owens, perhaps. What, what is your view of Candace? I think she is uh, incandescent. I think she's a superstar. I think she is uh, already, she's opened the eyes of a lot of young blacks in ways that only another attractive young black person could get them to do. I uh, am very proud of her, and she's often attributed uh, some of her ideas and inspiration to me, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, she's, uh, she's, she's incredible. And, um, but there are a lot of young blacks that I feel are what I call victocrats and carrying messages of poison. Uh, one of them is Don Lemon on CNN. Every night he's whining about this, whining about that. Uh, rich guy who got there because he believed in himself and he worked hard. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other pundits on CNN and on MSNBC, all of them young, all of them good-looking, all of them very successful, tenured professors, lawyers, all talking about how oppressed – oppressive America is and how racist America is. If it were that oppressive and that racist, they wouldn't be successful. And if you ask them all how they got successful, they'll tell you, oh, I worked hard, I stayed focused. But that's not what they say every night. What they say every night is Trump's a racist, America's un unequal, we need reparations. Uh, and it's a message of poison, as far as I'm concerned, that they're peddling to kids. Larry, as I listen to you, I hear the words of an impassioned, caring man, a man who I think deeply loves his people, I think you love people in general, but deeply with an ardent sense of your own ethnicity and people, who is the recipient and unfortunately only rewarded with disdain from the very people you're trying to help. How does that, how, is, how do you handle that every single day, I guess is what I'm really asking. Um, it's not hard to handle it. I feel that they are damaged. I, I handle them almost the way I would handle a, a dog that's been a trained that's been trained to attack. I'm not mad at the dog. I, I'm I'm mad at the people that have trained them to attack. All the professors, all the Hollywood movies, all the media, all these people that are conspiring to tell the tell you that you are a victim. It doesn't surprise me that you feel that way, especially if you don't have a mother and a father in in the house to tell you otherwise. So I look at it as, as if they are they are wounded. Uh, handicapped. Uh, and it's my job to, to try to fix that. So I don't take it personally. I just think that they don't know what they're saying. Uh, they've been trained to say what they're saying. Look, when 90% when of black people believed at the time O.J. Simpson was innocent, even though there was a mountain of evidence, the man did everything but leave his business card there, something else is going on. And what that else, and what that else is going on is emotion. And so that's what I try to, to try to take out of it. Take the emotion out. Let's look at the facts. And the facts are, if you work hard in America, get an education, uh, make sure you can read, write, and compute at grade level. Don't make bad moral mistakes. You'll be just fine in America. Let's suppose Larry Elder opens a camp, a camp for children in South Central Los Angeles, and the children attend during the summer months for eight weeks. What would be the five top things of your curriculum? Um, homework. Uh, make sure that you get an education. Um, Make sure you hang around with people who have similar values. Know something about finances. Know something about money. Know something about making sure that you know how to balance a checkbook, know how to uh, put, get out a mortgage, understand what, uh, uh, how, how, to, how to spend money and how to, how to save money, uh, and to believe in yourself. Uh, and uh, plan your life 
like you're a winner. Plan your life like you're going to succeed. And if you work hard uh, and, and associate with people who share your values, you'll be just fine. And by the way, I, I do a lot of charity work for something called Prison Fellowship, uh, and there are a series of camps around the country where for two weeks uh, children who have parents in prison can come. And I'm very actively involved in, uh, in, the, in that organization, and that is exactly what I tell these kids. I'm asked the same questions that you ask me, and that's what I tell people. Prison Fellowship was established by Chuck Colson, and um, it is, as you say, to help people not only who are incarcerated, but to help those who are, if you will, emotionally incarcerated with the people who are incarcerated because right. they remain at home and they're suffering. When you look at the high uh, institutional incarceration rates of the African-American community, what take do you have other than fathers being absent regarding that? Um, I, that, that is my take. I'll give you a story. There was a book called My Father's Face by a man named James Robeson. And he talked about a federal prison chaplain who wanted to improve the morale. So he went to a local greeting card company and asked for 500 greeting cards for free for Mother's Day. And the greeting card company felt it would be a good PR move and gave him 500 cards. And the men filled them out, and, and morale did, in fact, improve in the prison. All right, Father's Day rolled around. The chaplain decided to do the same thing for Father's Day. Went to the greeting card company, got 500 cards, and took them back to prison. Not one inmate, Alan, not one inmate wanted to fill one out and send it to his father. Now, what does that tell you? Um, it, it, it's, it's not having a relationship with a, with a man so that you can know how to navigate. A Tupac Shakur, again, forget Larry Elder, Tupac Shakur, the rapper, he once said, I know for a fact that had I had a father in my life, I would have been more disciplined and I would have had more confidence. End of quote. Tupac Shakur. How are you different as a father yourself? I presume you have children. I am not a father. Uh, I don't have children. And um, uh, it's probably something that I should have done a long time ago. Uh, I, I suppose I still have the equipment to do it. <laughs> I'm almost 60. I'm almost 67. <laughs> we won't, we won't uh, question and that. I, and I never really wanted to have kids one way or the other until probably the last 10 years or so. My attitude then began to change, partly because I saw some of my friends who are my age who now have grown children and the wonderful relationship they have with those children. So all the hard work was, was worth it. Um, so it's not a big regret, but uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have played my cards differently. Prison Fellowship is, is a ministry, uh, which leads me to the, the next logical question. Did you grow up with uh, any particular ardent, uh, clear faith or um, just a sense of, of moral sensibility? I had a very religious upbringing. My mother taught uh, Sunday school. I was an acolyte. I played uh, piano in, in church. Uh, and um, uh, Bible study was very strong in, in my house. Um, so I, I consider myself to be a, a believer. Um, I, I don't know where else life could have come from. I don't know how else we got our rights. And I don't know how else you defend rights unless you argue that they come from a higher power than from man, because man can take them away. So that's kind of uh, been always been my point of view. Why has the African-American church in particular from the 1960s, early 60s onwards, with the Democratic Party and, and not with the Republican Party? I mean, Christian is Christian, I would think. And yet there is this great divide, this great chasm between those on the left and those on the right, largely dependent on whether they're in Presbyterian white churches predominantly or in black Baptist churches. How do you explain that? I think the transition of the black church reflects the transition of the black vote in, in general. Blacks, of course, used to be Republicans, obviously. They were freed by Republicans. Uh, the New Deal shifted uh, the black vote from Republican to uh, to Democrat. Uh, and then after that, uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson's war uh, on poverty shifted it some more. Uh, and now we're at this 95%. So it seems to me that the church is really mirroring the uh, movement to the left on the part of blacks as a whole. Just a few hundred miles south of you in Los Angeles is Tijuana, and the proposal, obviously, for extending the wall. Uh, what is your take on, as some have alleged, the fact that unskilled, illegal labor is taking away potential jobs from African Americans? Well, probably the economist has done more research on the impact of legal and illegal uh, labor on America is a guy named uh, George Borjas from Harvard, and he said there's no question that unskilled illegal immigration uh, uh, 
poses competition for jobs for unskilled black and brown workers living in the inner city and puts downward pressure on their wages. And that used to be a pretty much uh, a standard position on both the left and the right. Bernie Sanders even said that in 2015 before he got hammered. Um, so uh, it, it's pretty obvious. In, and Cesar Chavez, the so-called uh, civil rights leader, was actually a union leader, the founder of the uh, United Farm Workers. He hated illegal immigration and worked with the federal government to stop it because he knew it threatened uh, his, his uh, job for his unionists and, again, put downward pressure on their wages. What's your position, and I think I know, but I'll ask just for, for the benefit of the audience, on the idea of a fixed minimum wage? The minimum wage used to, should be 0.00, and that used to be the position of, of, believe it or not, the New York Times. If you Google the New York Times, the minimum wage editorial, 1987, they wrote an editorial in which they said the ideal minimum wage should be zero and made the very same argument I just did, that all you're doing by jacking up the minimum wage is pricing unskilled labor out of work. And so the very people that need to have a job are going to be less likely to get it because you've priced them out of the market. And that's what the New York Times even said. So fast forward now, the New York Times, of course, has done a 180, and now they support things like a $15 minimum wage. What I find fascinating is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of the proponents of the $15 minimum wage. She used to work at a place called the Union Shop. It's a coffee shop off of Union Square. Very popular. Uh, even uh, was patronized by people from Sex in the City. That's how popular this restaurant is. It's just now shut down. And the principal reason, according to the co-owner, is because New York just went to, wait for it, a $15 minimum wage. And yet AOC and the rest of the Democrats don't seem to care. I always ask this of people who do not like Trump. I say, can you see any good in him, any good whatsoever? I'm going to flip it, and in fairness to anybody who doesn't agree with you, what good, if any good, do you recognize in Barack Obama? The number one thing that Barack Obama did was project an image of a proud, happily married man and a proud, happily married woman who are working hard to make sure their children are raised properly. He was a wonderful role model for a nuclear intact family. Outside of that, there's very little about his administration that I was happy with. I was not happy with the Iran deal. I was not happy with this push on climate change, not happy with him raising taxes, not happy with the stimulus program, not happy with his, with his judges, not happy with the fact that he pulled out all the troops out of Iraq, didn't like the way he dealt with, uh, with Russia. Uh, I could go on and on and on. I, I think he was one of the worst presidents in my lifetime, with the possible exception of Jimmy Carter. President Trump has made the country better. Has he said some silly things, stupid things? Has he had some silly uh, feud with John McCain for reasons I don't quite understand? Yes, but I like where the ball has landed. The ball has landed in exactly the right place. Taxes are, are down. The corporate tax rate is down. Consumer confidence through the roof. Unemployment, 3.5 uh, percent. Black unemployment, uh, historic lows. Hispanic unemployment, historic lows. Um, I thought it was about the economy stupid. That's what Bill Clinton said in 1992. Now, all of a sudden, there's no longer about the economy stupid because the economy is good under a guy that they consider to be stupid will there ever be a larry elder as a candidate no i, I always tell people two things could happen and both of them are bad i could lose or i could win no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you copy on that one uh so honestly you know you know not even city councilman uh when you retire look i I have been approached to run for everything up to and including president. And uh -huh. one time I, I was approached by people that had serious money, who were serious people, and I said, okay, if the Republican Party will endorse me uh, in, in the Senate race against Barbara Boxer, which was a few years ago, I will run. So I flew to, to Washington, D.C., met with a bunch of Republican senators, uh, told them about my background. I thought for sure I had won them over. I get back to LAX, phone rings. I'm sorry, we're going to go with Carly Fiorina. And I said, why? And they said three reasons. She's a woman. I said, I'll give you that. Number two, she has more money than you. I said, I'll give you that. Number three, she has higher name recognition than you do. I said, no, she doesn't. Right. She does in Washington, D.C., but not in California. The reason I know that is because one of my friends put me on a, on a petition to find out what kind of name recognition I had. And mm. it turned out I had a 35% name recognition in California. Yes. By the same token, in Barbara Box's first two races, uh, her opponents at the same time had 5% name recognition. But they went with Carly Fiorina, and had, had they endorsed me, I would have I run. I don't know if I would have won, but I certainly would have gone to run. 
I want to ask you about broadcasting and the the industry that we're in. Um, how much of this, you know, political pundits is uh, is a matter of posing? Because you hear that, you know, when you go backstage when there's these public debates that people are sharing, you know, glasses of sherry and wine and coffee or whatever it may be. They're amiable. Everything's fine. They go out onto the stage and then immediately they go for polarizing the audience. How much of it is showbiz and how much of it is legitimate and real? I think it has to, that's case by case. I think with some people, a lot of it is show business. With other people, uh, it's very sincere. Uh, I know with me, um, you know, I have four kind of goals whenever I do my radio show. The first is to be entertaining. The second one is to be informative. The third is to be provocative and ideally to be uplifting. If I can do all four of those things, uh, that's good. But unless you're entertaining, nobody cares. And so you've got you to have something so that people listen to you. Uh, it shouldn't be something, some sort of gimmick. It shouldn't be something that's phony. But if, if you're not entertaining, if you're not expressing yourself in ways that people find uh, listenable, you're in trouble. Well, you've certainly done that on my program. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking to Larry Elder, and we'll continue for a moment. And the show is called Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to conclude by asking this question. What would be the most puzzling and perhaps unexpected facet and part of Larry Elder's personality that most people would never imagine is there? (laughs) Well... Uh, I'm not. I'm not the enemy. I'm not a villain. A lot of uh, people think of me as a bad guy. Uh, and as I said before, uh, the worst that you can say about me is that I'm naive. Why would you be angry about somebody who believes that that America is a great country, America is a just country, America is a fair country, America is not a racist country, not a sexist country? Why would that be bad news? And so I guess I, I would like people to know that I, I don't get up in the morning and and uh, with a hatchet uh, and uh, and go at, go after people. Uh, I'm a person. That believes in uh, in hard work, uh, uh, and that and that we are we are blessed a to be born in America. And if you were born with a mother and a father under one roof, uh, who tried to stay together and tried to love each other and try to love you, you are doubly blessed. I must share that as a person born abroad, I'm proud to be born in Britain, but I'm just as proud to be an American by choice. When is your next publication coming out? A good question. We're working on it right now. The working title is. Uh, access of indoctrination, how Hollywood, academia, and media indoctrinate America. And uh, that's what I'm working on now. Not that necessarily everyone agrees with you, but we do know one thing, that you care about America, you care about your people, and you are earnest and direct and honest. We thank you so very, very much, Larry Elder, for being with us on Watching America. Well, and thank you. It's been very much my pleasure. Terrific. Thank you. You've been listening to Watching America. Watching America's theme tune is by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Many thanks to producer Paul Bebo, senior producer Gina Gamboni. This WHRV production is also guided by executive producer Chuck Dowd. Content producer Heather Mazzoni and CEO Bert Schmidt. I am the series creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Watching America is made possible in part by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Until next time, take care and blessings. <laughs>